0: to uh, Psalm number uh, four, Psalm four. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up your light, the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. This is a uh, wonderful um, psalm of confidence in the Lord. As we're going through the psalms, we're learning to pray, hopefully. You can either consider this a series in the psalms, or you can consider it a series on prayer. Um, As in, when you're telling your friends or your family, come along because we're doing a series in that kind of thing. Uh, In the psalms, or in prayer. And, but both are the same. They, they're, the Psalms are teaching us how to pray. Jesus prayed from the Psalms, didn't he? He prayed from Psalm 22. He, he prayed from other Psalms. Into your, uh, into your hands I commend my spirit. Uh, the early church learned how to interpret their troubles and their persecutions through the Psalms. And so they prayed to God from Psalm uh, 2, for example. Uh, So the prayers of the Psalms were very much a part of the heritage of not only the church down through the ages, but but, uh, the the people of the New Testament, especially our Lord. They prayed the Psalms. And so the Psalms teach us how to pray. Not only that, but they give us a boldness in prayer. Just as I was, again, reading the first verse, answer me when I call. That's very strong language, very bold. He's desperate but he has a a, a, a leg to stand on. Um, And it's a psalm of confidence that even in the face of death itself, uh, this psalm will forever uh, remind me of our dear brother uh, Harold McLeod, an elder down in in Montague, because if you visit his uh, grave down in uh, Lindale, uh, you will see the last verse of Psalm 4, engraved upon the stone. And it, it, it was a testimony to Harold himself that uh, the confidence he put in the Lord uh, even in death. And so that, that, uh, the, it, it speaks very powerfully. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. What a beautiful uh, inscription on a, a tombstone. I'm thinking I'm putting it there myself. Yeah, when my, my time comes. So it's, it's quite nice. But uh, uh, many uh, believe that Psalm 3 and 4 uh, form a, a, a single unit. One written in the morning, Psalm 3, and one in the evening, Psalm 4. There's nothing really uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, tie that together apart from the fact that they're close to one another and that some of the themes are the same. But there's no direct historical reference over this psalm to suggest that it it is the same. The idea of the Lord making him lie down to sleep and the deceitfulness of of, uh, their enemies and and so on. Uh, The the desperation of the prayer and so on. Uh, Some of those themes link it to Psalm 3 and just the proximity of how the two were put together uh, suggests that that may be the case but uh, not necessarily. Uh, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are very similar nonetheless. The psalm uh, goes from uh, a cry of desperation and confidence in God's covenant uh, to a calling not only to the believing community, but to God's own enemies, To trust in the Lord. And then it ends with this idea of sleeping in safety. And these images, one that we find here in this psalm and one that we saw last week um, in verse 5 I will lay down, I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Uh, Being able to sleep soundly is a picture of a conscience that is good. And that you are trouble-free, that you have given over all your troubles to the Lord. You are trusting in him after meditating on his promises, his goodness, and now the Lord gives you sleep. He's not restless and tossing and turning. As he says in another psalm about, uh, I I soak my pillow with tears. Uh, It's suggesting that the sleep had fled from him. But not in these psalms. Uh, there is such an expression of trust in God that sleep uh, comes to um, uh, to the psalmist, and his trouble is, of course, as we see, uh, his these enemies. Uh, he's in distress in verse one. Uh, o men, how long will you uh, shall uh, my honor be turned into shame." And so there there seems to be these enemies that are against him. We also have a, a, an enemy of our soul. Uh, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But it seems like there is a second group of people that the psalmist is also antagonized by and that is not so much people who are enemies but maybe uh, believing people who have grown despondent and uh, cynical about their religion, and that 's often happened in the believing community. You find that in the in the the minor prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, where people were yeah, they were going to to sa- sacrifice to the Lord, but they were taking all the the leftovers, the, you know the, the lamb with the broken leg or the cu- cuts and bruises, and so on, and say, Oh well, what does it matter we 'll save the best for our boss, we'll save the best to impress our neighbors, but we'll take this uh, little lamb that's just on, on the verge of death and we'll take that to the temple and what, you know, whatever, it doesn't really make all that much difference. Um, and so there was a cynicism and, and, and it seems like the, the psalmist is writing to these two kinds of groups. Those were, who were particularly hostile and those who were maybe more cynical and lo- the, 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 the fire had died out from their worship. But as we hope to see that he is addressing both of these groups with a view of winning both of them, not just those who are uh, you know uh, indifferent, but those who are even hostile that his desire is to win them as well. And so his trouble comes by a group of people who are slandering those who are embracing lies, maybe about David himself. And, and that's where people tie in this psalm with the last, that suggesting maybe these are the people that are uh, with Absalom, those who want to kill David and overthrow him. And we know that David still had a love for his son. Remember what he said to Joab and the others, you know, deal kindly with my son. And even when Absalom died, he cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, would to God that I had died for you. And so even when Absalom was his enemy and wanted his head, David Express this love and longing to win Absalom back. We saw that last week as, the, as Psalm 3 played itself out in the life of David as David won the victory and as he's coming back into Jerusalem rather than taking vengeance on the people who did the dirty on him the, he said no this is a day of good news this is a, this is a day of reconciliation. No one's going to die today. And as a true leader, as a true king, he doesn't seek vengeance upon his enemies, but he seeks reconciliation. He wants to be reconciled to even those who had turned against him. And so even uh, uh, Shimei, who cursed David as he was leaving Jerusalem, throwing dirt and rocks at him, David spared even him because David knew arising out of God's mercy to David. David knew that it was only by the mercy of God that he uh, was able to come back into Jerusalem. And so nobody was going to be put to death. And that is also a great lesson for ourselves, isn't it? That our own attitudes toward people are tempered by God's dealings with us. So, so even David's enemies, we'll see here... Um, are the object of his desire to win them over. And how true that must be uh, for ourselves. Who ca- God who causes the rain to fall and the just and the unjust. We who are to pray for our enemies uh, and, and so on. Jesus taught us those things. And so David realizes that the Lord will not abandon him, but will protect him. And as the psalm moves to a conclusion fills his heart with greater joy than when grain and wine, the, some of the staples of the land abound. The things that bring sustenance and joy, these things pale in comparison to the joy that David finds in his own heart. And so it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a description of how different groups of people will affect us differently. So there's this first God word request in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And so David is a man of prayer. What What an important thing prayer is for us. I want you to think about your own life. And how much does prayer take up your day? How much does prayer play a part in your waking moments? Or perhaps you're the kind of person that you feel, well, maybe I'm more of an evening person. that I like to do my devotions before bed and pray before I retire. Sometimes we are different. And sometimes uh, it's both ends of the day that we find that are uh, appropriate to seek the Lord. And certainly that should be uh, the case. But regardless, David shows us that his call is to God. He does not go to people first. He doesn't trust in his sword. He doesn't say, how many chariots do we have? How many horses do we have? Now, there was an occasion when David did that. And the curses of God fell upon Israel for him doing that. But David, for the most part, knew that the first port of call was to pray to pray. And I've said before, but I remember when my uh, my Aunt Pat lived in New Brunswick in uh, Woodstock, she had a a plaque in her kitchen and uh, it was a very uh, a poignant little plaque and all it said was, have you prayed about it? And that, that's a great thing to put up in your kitchen. Some high traffic area, right? And oftentimes we're walking around the house, maybe we have got cares and concerns, Uh, maybe small, but maybe large. And to have a little reminder like that, just to say, have you prayed about it? Uh, It's a reminder. No, you know what? I didn't pray about it. I'm going around here maybe with a long face or worried or I'm getting an ulcer, but I haven't prayed about it. And David does that. David goes to the Lord. Uh, I recall the uh, occasion when David was... uh, on the run from Saul and he was living with the Philistines and he comes back he and his 600 men they come back to Ziklag where they had been living and when they get there they find that the city is on fire it's up in smoke and uh, David's men are so distraught they're weeping until they can weep no more and they're ready to stone David to death they were whispering and uh, what does David do? What would you do? It said the first thing that David did was he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What a beautiful uh, uh, example David is for us there. And so here he goes to the Lord. He's desperate nevertheless. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So here... You have this sense of urgency, answer, give relief, have mercy, hear. and he is uh, he is showing a sense of urgency when it comes to God and and that again can very be very much a part of our own uh, 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 way in which we approach God. But notice he says something else: Answer me when I call. O oh God of my righteousness. David knew how to use words when it came to God. And we can, we can uh, uh, use the, the language of the fact that David knew how to talk to God. He knew what buttons to push with God. He knew what buttons to push. He knew what words to use to provoke a response from God. Now, I'm not simply—I'm saying that we are uh, uh, manipulative when it comes to God. You can't manipulate God, can you? You can't manipulate God. You can't force God to do something that he doesn't want to do. But, and nevertheless, God says to his people, take words with you and come to me. That's an interesting thing that God says. Come to me. Come at me with words I remember when my brothers were teaching me to box when I was a kid and of course it was just a pretext for them to beat on me but uh, they would get down on their knees and say now now come at me <laughs> you know that kind of thing and they would teach you how to hold your hands and then now come at me and of course they'd swap me and give me a Dutch rub and all sorts of stuff and, uh, but this is what God says He says, now, this is how you come at me. These are the words that I want you to take when you come after me. Words like, God of my righteousness. There David was pushing a button of covenant. He was saying, you're in covenant with me, O God. Just as you were in covenant with your people down through the ages, with the godly, those who came to you according to your promises, according to the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, and all of these things. And God, you are righteous. In this context, God is righteous because He is consistent with Himself. He's consistent with His promises. That's why Israel existed. Why did God send Moses down to Egypt? I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And I have seen the suffering of my people, and I have remembered my covenant with them, and I have come to rescue them. You see, Israel wouldn't even have existed had God not been faithful to his purposes, and faithful to himself. He was a covenant God, and he was moved by covenant. You remember in the time of Joshua when the Gibeonites came and uh, Joshua was, was uh, killing, all, all, you know, going around destroying the nations and, and the Gibeonites said, we better get our act together or we're going to be dead. We're going to get it from Joshua. So they, what did they do? They dressed up in old clothes and took with them old crusts of bread and they made out like they were coming from a far land and said, hey, we want to be in a covenant with you. Joshua didn't read the fine print. And he said, okay, we're in covenant now. Let's sit down and have a meal. Then he finds out, hey, those old Gibeonites, they they tricked us. They're not from a far land. They're just down the road. And they knew that they were going to get it if they didn't get into a covenant with you. So what do you think would happen in a situation like that? Would Joshua be in a place to tear up the contract and says, you lied, you deceived, forget it. No, God says covenant is a covenant. Honor that covenant. That's how strong covenant was in those days. And that's how strong covenant was. David knew that. David understood the strength of a covenant promise. And so he pushes this button with God. Oh God of my righteousness. The God who is consistent. The God who is faithful. One person has said that righteousness implies, in this case, relationship. He keeps His covenant with His people and He upholds His moral law and fulfills His promises. That's why we hide His Word in our heart. We store up His Word. We, We Pour over the word. We memorize the word. We hear the word preached. We read the word every day. To we have these great and precious promises, says Peter. Because we know that we can come to God. God says, "Come at me with these words. Come at me in this way. Not just rambling. Not just you know. But tell me who I am." remember? Blind Bartimaeus and his friend sitting along the roadside and they're crying out and crying out and Jesus is passing by. Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stops. Bring them here. They pushed a button with Jesus. Jesus, thou Son of David. In other words, you're the Messiah. This is what you have come for. God's mercy and His covenant is now being fulfilled in you. And so David is not just crying out, uh, you know, please help me, I'm in trouble, I'm in distress. God of my righteousness. Even in Psalm 51, where David, uh, again, there's a historical uh, context to it. And which leads up, in fact, to Psalm 3. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. In other words, he's going to God based on who God is and what God is. According to your mercy, according to your steadfast love, And so David knows how to pray. He knows what buttons to push. David hopes in God's commitment to do what is right in line with His covenant. David is not pleading any kind of innocence in the matter. He's not pleading any kind of self-worth in the matter. David himself, if, if, it, if it's true what they say that this psalm is linked to Psalm 3, when he flees from Absalom, David knows as he's going out of Jerusalem, weeping barefoot as he goes, he knows that his own sin has brought him to this place. So he knows that he carries no uh, 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 currency with God when it comes to his own accomplishments. He knows that. But he doesn't for- let God forget that He is in covenant with Him. How much more true is that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our righteousness, who Himself fulfills the law on our behalf and fulfills the promises and purposes of God. And God, more than anything else, is delighted to hear us in His Son And so Christ, who is our righteousness because He has fulfilled the law, now dies on the cross for sins not that He has committed, but for our sins. And if any man be in Him, He has a bold place to stand. That's why the writer to the Hebrews, as he's speaking to these people who are immature, ready to throw in the towel, ready to give up, Cynical, you might say, just as some of these people are. And yet the writer to the Hebrews goes on to extrapolate on the covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant with Moses. I will, I will put my law on their hearts. And, and it's, it's a, the new covenant based on the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore he says, do not throw away your confession, which has great recompense of reward. Don't throw away your confession. Don't throw in the towel. As bad as it looks, as difficult as life is, hold fast. Keep your eyes fastened on Jesus. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Looking unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, he brings covenant into it. So, he talks not about the blood of bulls and goats. He says they can never take away sin, but the but it's the blood of the new covenant through Jesus that now makes the difference. And this is the how he we come unto God through Jesus. If David could say that God is the God of his righteousness, how much more now can we say it in Jesus, right? Isn't that what the New Testament is trying to encourage people? Coming boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy in time and help, and mercy in, in times of need. Coming boldly—that's what he calls his people to do, and this is what David is doing here. So David is putting himself in a frame of mind. He uses the language of righteousness. He uses the language of covenant. He's not using the language of. Well, I am someone. I have accomplished a few things. I'm not as bad as all that. He doesn't use that language. He's putting it right back on God. He's pushing God's buttons in all the right ways. Because he knows that God is a covenant God and he's bound to his covenant. If they were, if God said that. Joshua and the Israelites were bound to a covenant with the, Midian, the, the the Gibeonites, who lied their way into it. How much more we who humbly and in truth and in need come before God, will He not honor that covenant when we come in the name of Christ according to His blood? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. See, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, you have given me relief. He's already saying what God did in the past. Again, he's pushing the button. Verse the middle of verse one, you have you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious and hear my prayer uh, 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 to me and hear my prayer. In other words, Lord, you did it before. Will you not do it again? He's riding the crest. He, you've seen these surfers who are out there paddling their way out, and then the, there's this wave that's coming in, and they're looking at it, and they they say, "Okay, I'm going to catch this wave." <laughs> And this is what David is doing again. He's catching another wave. And it's called God's former faithfulness in the past. He says, Lord, you did it so m- amazingly when I was on the run from Saul. Lord, I remember the time with Goliath. I remember when I went up against the Philistines. I remember, Lord, when you delivered me at Ziklag. Lord, I was in a tight place. That's what the word distress means there. It means a narrow, tight place you couldn't move but god made a way oh that was never more in evidence than the red sea right the egyptians on one side and the red sea on another uh, on the other side you couldn't you can't get it more of a tight spot than that can you god made a way through the sea he split the sea apart and they were able to walk through on dry land of course that is a wonderful and beautiful picture Of the law coming at us from one side. The condemnation of the law. And death itself. And God makes a way. Here's the condemnation of the law. Here's the holiness of God. And the two are coming together to destroy. But God makes a way through the flesh of His Son. Give me relief, for I have been... You have helped me before when I was in distress. That's how David teaches us to pray. That's how David reminds us that we don't come to God with simply rambling words. But we learn the language of prayer. The language of covenant. The language of redemption. The language of who God is. God's mercy. God's covenant love. And we plead those promises like David and the prophets and All of these people did before. And out of this, he rebukes. He begins to rebuke his enemies. O man, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So out of that confidence that the Lord is hearing, he begins to turn to his enemies and rebuke them. These enemies are of a particular sort. They're not just men in general, but uh, the word literally is exalted ones. means people of high social status. Again, this could very well apply to Absalom. Or Ahithophel, the great, Uh, 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 advisor to King David who now betrayed him. And are now falling for this conspiracy. They're believing the lies about David. They're following a shadow that Absalom is. Absalom does not have the Lord with him. He may have the enzymes of, of power and authority, but really they are trusting in a lie. They're trusting in something false. And David is rebuking them for that here. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you pursue after me? How long will you love vain words and seek after uh, lies? Absalom captured the kingdom by lies, didn't he? Remember last week we talked about that, how the conspiracy grew as... Absalom would go out among the people and say, Oh, you poor poor sir. If only there were someone to hear your case. If I were king, I would help you. All he wanted was power. One person said that these words explain how they have trodden the king's glory into the ground by betraying it for an unspec- unspecified worthless cause. They were willing to ramrod David. They were ready to steamroll him for lies itself. But David rebukes them. In the midst of his stress and his trial, David says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call. Since God was determined to defend David by his power... It was therefore in vain. It was very, it was useless for these men to try to destroy him. What a confident proclamation that David makes here! The Lord has set apart the godly for Himself, and He hears me when I pray. David turns and asks God to defend His own name, because He has set apart the godly for Himself. Again, he is pushing buttons here. God, I I am God's special possession. God has set me apart for himself to make known his name through my life by rescuing me from the pit, by rescuing me from my enemy. Think of that. When you call out to God, you say to God, God, you have set me apart. You have redeemed me by the blood of Jesus for your purposes. Isn't that, what, isn't that what Paul says? That through the church he is making known the manifold wisdom of God to the world? Through you and I in our homes and our daily lives? He has set us apart for a purpose. And we're able to say to the powers of darkness, No that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. God is not going to discard me like some piece of garbage or something that He pulls in and out from time to time. But no, He has set us apart, sanctified by the blood of Christ. And therefore we have a purpose. We have a calling. And God is interested in everything that happens to us in our daily lives. And so our enemies cannot rejoice over us. And we're able to speak those words in our own heart. We're able to declare them to the powers that be. The Lord has set me apart for His purposes, that He might be glorified in me. But still, David doesn't see this as simply... An occasion for him to get big-headed. He's still trying to reach out to his enemies. He's still trying to uh, 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 draw the enemies in. But nevertheless, he knows that he is in covenant with God, that God has a special purpose. He has set the godly apart from himself, that God's name might be glorified. What does Psalm 23 tell us? He leads me in paths of righteousness Why? for His name's sake. Isn't David saying the same thing there? He has set aside the godly for himself that the Lord might be glorified in my responses. And how David is glorifying God. How David is manifesting the heart of God even toward his enemies in this. And many commentators think that David is still addressing his enemies and I think that's the case here in verse 4 when he says be angry and do not sin there is as the New Testament tells us a righteous anger that we can be angry but that's a fine full cup to hold that's a very delicate thing to walk with righteous anger Not letting it spill over into pride or spite or sinful anger. And so he's saying to his enemies, there is an anger that can be expressed without sinning, but they don't seem to have it, as verse 2 suggests. Now this, as you'll know, is what Paul picks up in Ephesians when he's speaking to the believing community. And he's saying to them, Yes, you can be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Let your anger be of a just and a holy nature. That's not the case with these men. Neither was their sacrifices. And so he enjoins them in verse 5. Offer right sacrifices. Sacrifices that come from a humble, broken heart. Not out of deceit and wickedness and believing in lies. God's not going to accept that. Don't bring your sacrifices to God and yet on this side be doing something else or harboring something in your heart. Hate or whatever it might be. And so he enjoins them. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Again, we need to remind ourselves of David's heart in this whole episode. Again, if this is tied to David's fleeing from Absalom. But even if it's not, we know that this is the way David was, often toward his enemies. He wasn't acting toward them out of a sense of hate, but out of a sense of winning them to the truth. And that was certainly the case with Absalom. Deal kindly with the young man for my sake. And David, again, knew that all of the trouble that he was going through was in large part brought on by Himself. And out of that, He is counseling. He is counseling His enemies. Not to love vain words. Not to seek lies. Know and understand God's purposes that are being worked out through the godly, through the believing community. Not to be angry but to ponder in your hearts, on your beds and be silent. Being still and know where this anger is leading you. How it's going to consume you. How it will lead you away from God. Offer right sacrifices. And put your trust in the Lord. And So this was an appeal on the behalf of David for even his enemies to trust in God. That they would come to know him. That they would believe in him. Again, that's throughout the Psalms. Last week we sang Psalm 87. We talk about looking forward to enemies coming to the knowledge of the truth. Psalm 87 speaks wonderfully about that. He's talking about on the holy mountain of God. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. That's the church. Among those who mention my name Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre and Cush. These were all traditional enemies of the people of God. And yet here is the psalmist with a heart reaching out to them that if only the nations would know and see who God really is. God's, God's Irrefutable purposes. You can't defeat God. Why are you doing this? Why are you raging? Why do the nations rage? God is sitting in heaven laughing, looking down at these poor people, mounting a defense against God. And the psalmist in so many occasions is reaching out in love, calling them back in. Isn't David expressing the true spirit of God? the true heart of God, even for God's own enemies. And so lastly, we see a hope-filled relief. Who will show us any good? There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. David comes to this place where he's speaking to this other group who have become perhaps cynical. Who will show us any good? In other words, what's the use in all of this? Where is it getting us? If these people are tied to David, seeing that the kingdom of David is on the way out and down, going down, 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 maybe they're despairing. Maybe they're cynical now about staying with David. Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's reminiscent of Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. David is employing those words, praying for these people who have grown jaded and depressed and cynical. Maybe we often feel like that ourselves. What's the use of going to church? What's the use of praying in the morning? What's the use of reading my Bible? What's the use? Do you ever feel that? Who will show us any good? Pilate, what is truth? What good is it all? And people of God entered into that at different times. Again, going back to what we said at the beginning, where the people were offering sacrifices of just, who cares? Take the worst in the the pen and bring that to the temple and we'll give that to God. What difference? David is praying for a revival in his people's heart. Lord, make your face to shine upon them. You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. David was a man who understood that a man's life does not consist in what he possesses. That's something we need to hear again and again and again. Because we're always surrounded with materialism, aren't we? Material things. And we define our successes and our failures by how much we have and how much we don't have. What kind of food we have. Well, how we've prospered in this, that, and the other. Here I am, 20 years on, what do I have? What do I, what can I, how can I account for my life? How much money do I have in my bank? How, how much do I have saved up in my RRSPs? Now I will measure my success in those things. David says no. You have put more joy in my heart than when grain and wine abound. Now these were staples in the land. These were things that people measured the blessings of God by. Like the rich man who said, what will I do? My grain has expanded to such a, I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger barns. You see, all he understood was success was measured in terms of how much he had. David says, no, no. You have put more joy in my heart. I I could have all of these things and it wouldn't come close to the joy that I feel because, Lord, it is You. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're more than food on our tables. We're more than the money in our bank accounts. We're made in the image of God. We're made for Him. He has redeemed us. Therefore, they are before the throne, worshiping God day and night, ever singing His praises. You see? That's what David understands. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that I may seek Him in His temple, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You see? One thing I have asked, and this will I seek, Not money, not fame, not fortune. But God himself, who puts more joy in my heart than when grain and wine abound. Solomon went down that road. Wine, women, and song. He says, I tried it all. Building projects, whatever it was, I tried it all. Vanity. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. But no, David comes to the sum of it here. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they uh, when their grain and wine abound. That's where the Christian can stand. That's where the Christian goes up against the darkness. That's where the Christian can, can overcome those things that keep us up at night and say, away with you. Uh, it is the Lord. Lord, lift up your face upon me. Help me to remember your promises. Help me to preach the gospel to myself again tonight and this morning. And through that, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. These are amazing things. And we do well to pray them, to meditate on them, and make them part of the fabric of our own prayers and our own cries to God. And to remember that God has given words, buttons that we can go to, words that we can say to God that provoke this sense of, God, this is who you are. This is what you have done. I am in covenant with you. Lord, you have set apart the godly for yourself. And I, in spite of all my sin and failure, Lord, I am set apart by the blood of Jesus. You've put your spirit in me. I know it. Therefore, Lord, I, will, I know that you will never, ever leave me nor forsake me. And now I'm going to put my head down on my pillow and go to sleep. Let's pray.